Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, hello, dear friends and podcast listeners. I'm Ed Malian, and this is the Indie Football Podcast. Here we are back on Mondays after a special edition on Friday in which we broke down transfer deadline day and the summer's action off the field. Now we have months ahead of hopefully only discussing what happens on it. And to help me do that today, I have some of Indie Sports finest. So without further ado, allow me to introduce our chief football writer. He is half Spanish, half Irish, but wholly committed to covering England this week. It's Miguel Delaney. All right. A reminder, you're not listening at one and a half times speed. That is just how fast Miguel speaks. And also here, with three lions on his shirt, two surnames and one dream to be the best podcaster he can be. It's Jack Pitbrook, everyone. Afternoon. And firstly, making it uh, funny, sorry, making his podcast debut, the Indie Football Engine Room. It's Ben Burrows. Ben, say hello. Hello. He's delighted to be here. And also hello to producer Tom Goulding. He's filling in for Matt this week. He doesn't have a microphone, so you can't see him saying Hello. Right, international break, guys. Uh, usually a great time to take some holiday if you work in sports journalism because it feels like the death of anything fun or interesting. But I think this international break has thrown up more issues than usual. So we do, thanks to Gareth Southgate, actually have some interesting topics to delve into. One of those, Miguel, mm-hmm. you wrote about on Saturday, and uh, you can read that by heading to independent.co.uk slash sport, as ever. That piece was about the England captaincy. So first, start us off by telling what, that's what Gareth Southgate actually said. Well, yeah, basically he is continuing this uh, policy of rotating the captaincy on a game-by-game basis. He probably has about three or four main candidates, but his whole idea is to try and develop leadership in the team so more and more players um, more and more players showed the skills was required in that regard. Uh, but it's obviously become a slightly, not controversial topic, but it's become a, a topic of debate because Southgate was directly asked on Thursday whether he would pick a full-time captain for the tournament. And he said um, he still hasn't made up his mind, uh, which would be a massive break from historical tradition. But I think more interestingly, it was one of his comments. I mean, this discussion was on about like five to seven minutes of a 20-minute press conference. But then he just goes, yeah, it's on my list of priorities, not high. (laughs) Um, Which uh, (laughs) I suppose is quite contrast to maybe sometimes how it's covered. Uh, And I think Sauke is absolutely right because, I mean... We know so many of the issues with England over the past two decades and, and all of that, but I, I think I think one of the issues almost uh, around the England team, it's always, there's always kind of strange obsessions that take up so much mental space and mental energy, rather than kind of things maybe we should actually be talking about. And I think Sauke is trying to he, he's trying to change that, and I think this captaincy issue is one of them. I was trying to say the captaincy is is a sort of just all this talk about the captaincy at least is a distraction from what they should be doing, which is concentrating on trying to get beyond the, the last 16 Yeah, tournaments. also, I mean, like the, the captaincy has been such a massive issue for the past two decades, and what's it actually meant in the, in the end? <laughs> still well, the headline of your piece uh, says that Gareth Southgate's philosophy on captaincy is the kind of evolutionary approach England are crying out for. So you think that Southgate is actually taking the team on by diminishing the, these... Yeah, well, yeah. these non-issues. I, I think there are other, as a, as a, I think, important caveat, I think there are other issues with Southgate's management. You still have some doubts about him and the job and I think what is more concerning than anything is that 
the quality of England's attacking play has actually gradually declined as he's been in the job. I don't think they were very poor on Friday. But in saying that, I think everything else he's doing around the team is is actually correct. Uh, and I quite, I quite like him, I have to say. Jack, uh, someone once told me that England captain is just something that agents use in contract negotiations as a title. Uh, how do you feel about the, the issue itself? Yeah, I think, I, think, I think Southgate's absolutely right. I think that the obsession with the England captaincy has been damaging over the last 20 years because or for probably for longer than that because it it's one of it's basically part of a part of a culture where we we try and understand the England team and all sorts of team sports as if they're functions of individual will basically mm. if you have a captain then and you obsess about the, the who is the captain then it just like you kind of forget or it's easy it's you are distracted from like trying to think about the mechanics of team sport or the dynamics of how you want the team to play and that has very much been the case i think with england for a long time and that i do you'd like to think that the less we think about who wears the armband the more we might think about why it takes 65 minutes to score a goal against malta Mm -hmm. or questions like that and so in that sense i think this is one of a number of areas where Southgate is in exactly the right place and has got kind of kn- knows what is and isn't worth talking about. Also, it, it, there might be something that comes from his background, which is he's been working with all the, the youth teams. Mm. You know, obviously, before this, he was under 21 manager. And because they see players coming through and, and you could have an under 21 captain who's suddenly the next international break, he's not with your squad, he's with someone else. And perhaps he's seen there that there is not actually that much mm. of a, an importance to the team. Ben, do you feel like there is uh, probably an, an excessive obsession with this? By, by, is it the fans or is it the media? Or, or I think so. I think if you look at particularly other sports in England, say cricket, where the captain is particularly important, rugby is similar. He's a de facto it, coach on the field and cricket makes all the exactly. decisions. Whereas so where in football is not necessarily as important. Um, perhaps he's looking to find more leaders in his team, perhaps looking to coax more out of them if you look at the Iceland game back at the back at the Euros there weren't any leaders on the field at all so perhaps he's looking to find more from the players he's got there now even more Southgate made a really interesting point about this the other day where he said that from Steven Gerrard's international retirement in 2014 he thinks that lots of England's junior players hid behind Wayne Rooney and Henderson said that as well yeah and they allowed Rooney to take all the burden upon himself and basically, that 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 gave the younger players an excuse to duck taking taking responsibility. Now, clearly, that is not a healthy situation because mm-hmm. you don't want all the burden of responsibility on one person. I think we did slightly see that at the Euros. And so, if in this kind of post Rooney environment, responsibility and leadership can be shared equally between you know Hart, Cahill, Dyer, mm-hmm. Henderson, Kane, all the rest of them then that's obviously going to be a more healthy t- thing for the team. Here's one, actually. I think, hear me out on this, there's an argument that Beckham's goal against Greece in 2001 was actually one of the worst things to happen for the long-term future of the England team. A, because it, it, it created this kind of uh, hero idea of, about, around the captaincy and this kind of uh, obsession with it, or, or sorry, deepened it. And B, because it really made concrete the whole star complex in the England team that I think was damaging, for particularly through this, this Sven Goran Eriksson's and quote-unquote golden, golden generation. Yeah, I think but that's absolutely... Before that, before that, I mean, when Brian Robson was England captain, like, and it was a big thing. And all, so 
it's not that it started with Beckham. Well, but but I it think, certainly yeah. cemented it with Beckham. Yeah. I think it's fair to say. Sorry, Jack. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think that if you look at the big, the big issues really of the Sven era, which we've not really got past, are like the obsession, like one, the individualization, mm. the obsession with yeah. individuals, and the two. You know, we were talking about this the other day. Like the, the 2006 squad was probably like the the best squad England have ever taken yeah. to a tournament in terms of like the aggregate level of the individuals, and yet they were rubbish. And they've not Very really, team, yeah. yeah. They've not really got past that, um, and it's only you know what now coming up to fifteen years since the uh, since the Greece goal that we can maybe w- work towards a position where we try and be, think about these things less individually, less as if we are dependent on some hero saving mm. us. But um, actually, as well, that two thousand six squad. If you talk about the quality of the players, which is which is fine. The amount of leaders, the amount of guys in there who were kind of club captains or at least kind of important players within that team. If you think Gerard, Lampard, uh, but, but Terry then, Beckham, like all of these guys who were Campbell, Ferdinand, all these guys who were big names in their club. What, who is, but, but in, in midfield actually ended up being slightly self-defeating because I think as we were discussing off air, as, as Tony Evans said, it basically just <laughs> meant that very few of the players, they, they weren't quite willing very to fully accommodate. Yes. Yeah. They were selfish. They all wanted to play in their the preferred position. But... I, th- I think it's something to do with who in this uh, is something that we had a discussion that Ben and I had uh, recently is if you look at in this England squad, they're all goodish players. They're all okay mm-hmm. players, but there's no real, some, and there's no people really who are talisman for their side, except you could say the Tottenham guys. Yeah. And, and Harry Kane is a leading candidate. You'd say to be, uh, Miguel said this week that mm. Harry Kane might be the what the best player in their position that England yeah. had since Rooney at his peak, right? Yeah, probably. I'd say, I'd say relative to his own position, I'd say Kane is by far the highest standard player in the team. Every like, I mean, yeah, no one else either comes really comes close. Deli Ali could have Ali? a chance, but Ali perhaps it's a it's a potential thing. I think mm. you're looking at if you look at Kane right now is I mean I think it was Lopetegui yesterday saying he wishes Kane was playing for Spain, but if you look at the others, like Raheem Sterling was bought by a big big team to be a big player, but he's not there yet. Mm. Deli Ali was he's been bought to be that player and he looks he's on on the way but not there yet. Stones is similar, but he's stumbling somewhat. Kane is the only one who's a truly world class player in his position. Yeah. I feel like Kane could fit that the hero model. However, I mean, you you guys see a lot more of Spurs than I do. Is he is he a, a real leader? He doesn't seem like to me necessarily a guy who, who leads. He leads by performance, yeah. an example, rather than leading in the traditional sort of lion heart sense. Yeah, I think that's a, actually in given the conversation we're having. I think that's a healthy thing to his benefit. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of he leads by example, and because I mean, one thing well, Ken's quite he's quite a nice guy, but you know, he seems a very decent bloke, um, and he will, well, he will always give you in a pitch. Then he's like he's ultra committed in fact you had a sit down with him last year didn't you Jack yeah I remember speaking to him about about this and he was he was telling me how his hero is Tom Brady the Patriots quarterback because of the way that Brady Brady's job is like it's almost like the job that Kane Kane's is becoming at Tottenham like he's the guy who has to deliver even when the team are up against it he's the one who has to keep finding solutions and take all the responsibility upon himself. And obviously, like, being a centre-forward in, in soccer is not quite the same as being a quarterback in American football. But the fact that Kane is thinking about his job in those terms shows his willingness to burden that responsibility and to accept the pressure of being the guy who has to bail his team out over and over again. That's interesting because the quarterback is, relative to its sport, probably the most important position in any sport 
There is no other position. Like it, the entire. You can tactically arrange a. a of NFL course, team, it, it, it's it, unbelievably complex. The things that they have to do, and it all comes down to what the quarterback can do at the end of the day. I mean, we we have seen, I suppose, in recent years. Uh, to get really off topic, some other teams win Super Bowls with with middling quarterbacks but really good defenses. But the point is that if Kane is seeing himself in that thing, he's saying that basically the team can't do it without me, which you could argue that has been true of Spurs for mm. the last year, couple of years because if he hadn't been around, then maybe they would have been in trouble. But if England are to be successful, they are probably going to need someone like Harry Kane to be a world-class talent up front. And that you know, going with our conversation about the captaincy is is far more important than having a guy who might be the Lionheart who beats his chest as they're coming out the tunnel. Like, I think the Joe, the Joe Hart example is probably the one. Joe yeah. Hart basically embarrassed himself out of the England team a lot of the time doing this overhyping. How, how did he describe? He described it himself, didn't he? Didn't he talk about it? Yeah, he he. he I remember him admitting this would have been. Uh, roughly a year ago, post Euros, right? Yeah, when he soon after he'd gone to Torino and had that incredibly chastening summer. And he admitted to us in an England press conference that he had gone too far with the kind of overhyping and the sort of self-motivation. Um, and I think I actually think Joe Hart is a really instructive example to this discussion about like leadership and passion because, I mean, he everything that Hart did at the Euros and how badly wrong it went shows up what I think a lot of people have always suspected, which is that one a lot of this like ostentatious yeah. pride and passion stuff is performative and two that it's counterproductive yeah it, it felt like he had a vision in his head of what an england leader should be like so i'm going to really max that up yeah and actually what southgate made a point yesterday which is very much relevant to that where he's he was responding to the criticism that england players didn't care enough and he said it was quote out, outrageous that they would be accused mm. of that and he said that in fact from his own experiences he often thought that England players cared too much they were too wrapped up in it yeah we've seen targets Iceland probably yeah to perform successfully and he he was talking about his own experiences he wasn't talking about Hart at Euro 2016 but that criticism is absolutely applicable to what we saw from Hart and lots of other England players last Mm. year perhaps with Joe Hart though you're saying it is interesting it's performative and it does feel a little bit put on almost um and I, I have this theory, which again is moving slightly away from football, but in a different direction, is there are a lot of countries uh, around the world, and uh, I saw this a lot when I was in South America, and uh, weirdly it was when someone was attempting a coup in Ecuador. And you see, and uh, I was with some Colombians and Ecuadorians, and they were all crying and watching the CNN uh, in Spanish, and they were kind of wondering, like, you know, they're very proud of their country, immense uh, patriotism that you don't see in England. You know, they're basically, uh, for one reason or another, probably because England is just so old. Other countries that have perhaps gained independence more recently or are in different political situations to us are far more patriotic and far more proud of their country than a lot of these English players. Not to say that these England players aren't proud to play for England. However, it's much more of an emotional explosion for someone playing, for example, for Kosovo, which is a newly independent nation, than it is for playing for England. I feel sometimes that... uh, there are players who who try and put on how much mm. of, a, of a huge emotional show it is, and even uh, American sports. America is only two hundred or two hundred thirty, two hundred forty years old, right? So they only gained independence in seventeen seventy five. Seventeen seventy six. Seventeen seventy six. Sorry, <laughs> close enough. Uh, the uh, the weeping at the national anthem and all these things is, is an immense patriotism because of uh, you know indoctrination in schools and all these things. But I think perhaps in England we just don't have that 
strength of attachment. And I'm sure there are lots of people that do, and I'm going to get plenty of abuse well, mind for you, saying we, that. We, we say this after kind of nationalism essentially forced Brexit. Of course. Well, but but, then, but it's more, I, I know what you're saying. It's also it's very more disparate in England. That indeed has highlighted the, the, the divide, mm. has it not, that you've got a country where there, there are people who feel very strongly that, you know, and, and there are a lot of, I mean, if you ever see England fans abroad, um, I know they've got a bad reputation uh, and with reason in some places, but they travel really well. And there's a lot of guys that love that England team, you know, and, and there's nothing they like more than following England around the world and they have a, a hell of a time doing it. But at the same time, there are a lot of people, and we'll get onto this later, who are disconnected with the England national team. Even. Yeah. And that's for, a, that's for a number of reasons, uh, which we'll get onto later. But not to move away from the captaincy quite yet, because I think that is a, a key issue. Do you think, you, you mentioned the cricket thing uh, and the rugby thing, Ben, and it's interesting because in rugby, so in rugby, only the captain can speak to the referee. So it is more than a ceremonial role. In cricket, you are a de facto coach. And these are obviously two very traditional English sports. Do you think Southgate moving away from from that model, if he does, would damage his stock as England manager? With, you know, and, and and should it? I mean, I think Southgate's going to live or die by his results, and hopefully, as an England fan, I'd hope that by unburdening someone of the captaincy or by helping others take that mantle alongside the captain, that that would overall be positive for the team. Which is there Southgate's just no obvious candidate either? I think that that's that's also possible. You look like, but well, yeah, like we said before, when you had a Rio or a Terry in the side, it's obvious who's going to be captain. And even though, say, Henderson's captain of a big club like Liverpool, he doesn't necessarily embody the characteristics of certain captains from years past. And Kane would be, like we've said, closest to that. But perhaps it's perhaps it's that. Perhaps it's Southgate looking to go in a slightly different um, route. It does it feel were. like he's kind of. He has been trying to take this team in a different direction. I was quite impressed with him. Um, I covered the England-Scotland game in Glasgow with Miguel in mm-hmm. June and spoke to Southgate after that game. I was quite impressed with him, um, having previously thought he was a bit of a dull appointment, yeah, boring yeah, appointment, uh, a safe appointment, uh, which he almost certainly was. Um, but I was quite impressed with him because he does feel like a bit more of a modern manager. Yeah, I think we saw it at Middlesbrough. He, that job probably came a bit too soon for him. Uh, yeah. And... It didn't work out and, and they got relegated. But with England, I think he spent a lot of time traveling around and, and seeing how other coaching systems work rather than just teams and coaches, mm. coaching systems in Spain and Germany. And I think because he's trying things differently, I think we could see a couple of these things and it might upset the traditionalists, but this could be a better way forward. Again, as Ben says, you've got to get past the last 16 in tournaments. That's yeah. the only way of doing it, right? But it is one of the, and this probably feeds into the discussion we're going to have about kind of maybe the disconnected England team, but the fundamental problem with England for the last two decades, essentially, that bar 2008, they always qualify, and they always qualify usually fairly easy, as is the case now. So it just means that essentially everything is irrelevant and nothing means anything until they get to the first knockout game of a tournament. That's what it all comes down to. And, and Jack, having seen Southgate on Sunday... What were your ultimate thoughts on him and, and the direction he's taking England in? I really like Southgate. Um, like, I didn't really know what to think when I first started when I first started covering him as England manager. Uh, but I, I think he's very smart. He really like he really engages with the questions that he's asked. He has proper opinions, and when he answers questions, he doesn't he doesn't just give stock answers. Like he, he thinks things through, and sometimes he'll actually 
he'll actually say something like, well, you know, don't think about it like this. Think about it like that, which is always the side. You know, there's not many managers in the Premier League who who are that engaging. Like I think there's, you know, Wenger's like that. Sometimes Guardiola, depending on what mood he's in. Sometimes Mourinho. Um, so I and I and I actually find him sometimes quite persuasive. And even I think sometimes he gets it wrong. So for example, I think he he got it wrong when he's uh, this would have been last year when we were talking about Wilfred Zaha. And he said that players who have the option to play for England or another country should want to play for England. I think that was a misstep. Yeah, completely. Yeah. But mm-hmm. equally, I think that I, I like the fact that he's willing to have what might be unpopular opinions and try and explain them and argue for them. And I respect him for that. Yeah, I, I don't think he's a tactical genius. Um, I don't think like he might not be the best technical coach in the world. But from what I have seen of him so far, and I, I know being good with the media is not the be all and end all when it comes to a job like that. But he does seem to have enough know-how and enough knowledge to navigate this. In a, it, it's interesting. We should have had should have had Sam Allardyce in charge still, uh, uh, <coughs> had it not been for his uh, bizarre little uh, dalliance with a pint of wine. But the direction that the team has taken is so different now. The the, the paths are completely miles apart because because Allardyce was all about pragmatism and short termism and and I do almost think that he would have been like the ideal tournament yeah. man. So it does way. I think yeah. You know, it, it's impossible not to to conclude that based on what we've seen from him before. But Southgate I think might be better for the FA and, and England long term, which is how everyone's been begging the FA to think for a while. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jack, the second big topic we want to get onto today, I feel like we've really covered the captaincy off, is um, a slightly difficult one. But it's something Gareth Southgate did touch on again uh, when he was talking about the fans at Wembley uh, selling tickets, etc., and backing the team. Um, there does seem to be a bit of a disconnect between the public and, and the England team, or alternatively, you could say just less of an interest in international football and the England team. I want to talk about why that is, but first start with, with what Southgate said, and, and we can move on to maybe exploring the reasons why we think this might be. So at the press conference on Sunday, Southgate said that the it wasn't helpful for England fans to boo and jeer the team. He I think he stopped just short of criticising the fans, although you could tell that he was quite unimpressed with fans who boo and jeer, which was very clear, I think, from what Harry Kane said uh, immediately after the game on Friday. Um, so clearly there is a feeling within the, within the England camp that the fans should get behind the team more. 
Um, it's interesting this because I don't think that I remember. You know, it was only what say maybe eight years ago that. Wembley fans were quite vicious towards mm. players like Frank Lampard and Ashley Cole, who would often get booed playing for England. I don't think we have that anymore. I don't think there is as much negativity. What there is, is, yeah, like disconnect or just kind of lack of interest, I think, which is which goes broader than simply the people who go to the games at Wembley. But this is obviously a very basic thing, but I was even thinking about the weekend. We got Jordan Henderson in the mix on after Malta, and some of it was discussing the captaincy, of course. Um, the game itself, which by then, by I mean, these, these quotes were, came out last night, so that's two days after the Malta game, and no one cares about the Malta game. And then a little bit on Liverpool and Alex Oxlade Chamberlain. And obviously, you're going to lead in on, on the Liverpool stuff because it gets traction. I mean, you, you put up a kind of a, and, I, and again, this is a very slightly crude example, but you put up something on Twitter about some a little bit of uh, England news, and, and no, there's not much take up at all. But yeah, if it's club, if it's club related, then suddenly it, it explodes. From a, I mean, from a purely digital web point of view, uh, the web traffic during international breaks, I can tell you, is, is much worse than during club time. People have much more interest in club mm. football. It's obviously a much more, more global thing. Um, the Premier League is itself a global brand now. So we get a lot of uh, web traffic to our website, uh, which had a record month last month, if you're asking. Uh, we actually had a load of traffic from Nigeria, from the US, from India... 71% of our traffic uh, for that big boxing mm. fight the other week was from the US. We've got, you know, worldwide audience. For England, obviously, that audience isn't as big. It, you're basically limiting to yourself to, I think, the population of England, excluding mm. Scotland, Ireland, all the others, is about 40 or 50 million, isn't it? But it is not. I mean, I remember, like, around, say, 98, when basically the Brazil national team was essentially the modern Barcelona Real Madrid, and they were the most glamorous club in the world, and they, they, they got so much... I mean, you, you could see it with all, I suppose, all, the, all the marketing deals. They were glamorised. Yeah, and, and I think for, for, for a long time, maybe England were part of that, one of, kind of you know, seven or eight nations who were kind of brands in their own right, but that, that just appears to be kind of completely dissipating now. Now, I think it will check, like, because tournaments are kind of events in and of themselves, obviously, but it, they're, they're, people are still usually interested in tournaments. But for the two years in between that, it's just, I mean... I, I think there are a few levels too. I mean, I was talking to uh, to one of the guys in the plane back from Malta, and we we're kind of saying like, you know, I suppose growing up as a or when you had ambitions as a journalist, it was almost like the game itself, and you would consider covering your country or covering the international game as the pinnacle of your career. But even that is it reflects the sport as well in the sense that international football no longer is the pinnacle pinnacle football in in any sense. And also, the, well, the, would you not say covering the World Cup final is yeah, is yeah. bigger than the Champions League final? Yeah, but that's that's still only because probably the Champions League final is every year, whereas the World Cup is every four years. Yes. So the the almost the infrequency creates kind of a, 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 a it still kind of perpetuates that feeling of specialness about it. Uh, and, and no, and to be fair again, like again, that's a tournament issue. But international, or international football in general, as was from a very, very basic football point of view, because of the way the, may, the game has moved on, because of the sophistication of top club teams, because of the integration, because they can you know accumulate the best players in the world, no international side can be anywhere near as good as as a country. And you, and you actually can see that in the quality of the games. It's just it's not as slick, not as not as good. Um, but I think that's one. I think there are loads of other issues why international football is fading as well. What I didn't want to do was just have four journalists discussing this. So uh, I did actually see on, on Twitter. There's a load of 
responses to a question about the disconnect. Mm. And I'm just going to read you a selection of them because there's a, a variety of different reasons and I think it's important to get them all in. Uh, one person says, too many qualifying games don't help the fans' mood, uh, mood and tired of having Premier League games interrupted for them, mm. which I think speaks to a greater problem when you contrast it with the Premier League. Actually, just to that, and that is relevant to the FA Cup as well. Because one of the problem, one of the problems the FA Cup has had is suddenly you're so invested in the storylines of the Premier League, and then oh, an FA Cup weekend, um, and it, it, it's just too much of a disruption to the, to, to the general season. Which I think why is it, there could be an argument for kind of making internationals kind of over a shorter period of time in, in June or whatever. But sorry, um, Southgate was an uninspiring appointment for already an inspiring team. I think uh, you could take that how you want. Too many boring qualifying games when we know England will be rubbish in the tournament. I've given up watching England team as the football is naff. Uh, that's something I'm sure we'll go into. The fans thirst for the glamour of the Premier League and Champions League has devalued qualifiers, the same as the FA Cup, etc. Uh, they're only interested in the finals tournaments, which I think is is pretty fair. Through no fault of the team, I believe fans are tired of qualifying matches to tournaments. Yep, yep, yep. I think this is happening equally at club sides, the disconnect between fans and players. That's an interesting point as well. Um, the, no one's interested anymore. The players certainly aren't. That's the biggest thing for me. It's a sideshow for them. And I wonder if you talk to some players off the record how true uh, that would be. Um, playing two holding midfielders against Malta yeah okay I get that no one, intro- no one enjoyed England Malta Lisa or Miguel <laughs> uh, and one final one just saying qualifying format should change we should have real challenges to get to these tournaments instead of getting humiliated when we're there I think there's, so there's a range of reasons um, I'm sure we're going to touch on all of them in some form the qualifying thing is most interesting uh, Ben it's w- what we talked about earlier imagine if Manchester United had to play Rochdale Berry. Uh, Tranmere Rovers every week and then once every three months they got to play Arsenal or, or even more infrequently than that the, the qualifying thing though is, is inescapable so how do you fix international football from that point of view? I think I don't think international football needs fixing as it were I think you look at the World Cup is still a peak for all fans it's this wonderful thing every four years it's a fact for, from an England point of view is they only seem to have a meaningful game every two years, so it's a last 16 or whatever. You look at, there's still a place for international football and people still get excited about it. You look at Spain versus Italy on Saturday, it was a great game with some great players playing great football. It's the fact that England aren't testing themselves at that level and then when they do, they get found out because they're doing it so infrequently. But we talked about, uh, especially, it really became obvious after the Euros um, and during the Euros, the quality of coaching in international football mm-hmm. just isn't as good. Uh, and what you see, therefore, is people talking about Gareth Southgate playing two holding midfielders against Malta. Well, I mean, his job is to get the result there. It's not yeah. to score 10. Uh, they got the result as they needed. We saw Antonio Conte at the last yeah. Euros, and, and he was by far the best coach, and Italy overachieved with the squad well, that we discussed yeah. the other day. is so weak. Do you think international football, though, you can't really recover the quality of it with the money that's in the club game. That's it. Well, it, it, this is the fundamental problem. It's the club game, and particularly the big clubs, Champions League and Premier League, given the broadcasting deals and all, it's just so all-consuming now. And, and I think we are in an era, I think you, you can see it with support, it's this era of ultra-investment. And it's, it's, it's an interesting discussion as well. But it's, it seems a kind of uh, national, or feelings of patriotism national pride can't actually uh, pierce that for a, for a lot of kind of maybe... A younger generation of fans. The fact that you have countries like Abu Dhabi and Qatar buying up club teams, pouring all their money into them, which has a distorting effect on the in, on the transfer market for clubs, only goes to show that the you know the kind of flow of of money and from that quality and attention into club games has just completely swamped yeah. the international. 
swamp the international games and how, like how can international football ever compete with exactly. that? And actually, in, in relation to that, in relation to the Brazil point, the Brazil brand. Remember, it was about a decade ago when a lot of the kind of Qatari league that would specifically almost buy in Brazilian players um, because of the, because of the cachet attached to Brazil. And now they, they obviously realise that well, that's not really going to help the Qatari league because no one cares still. Um, <laughs> and they, yeah. Yeah. it does make you wonder though if if a country like Qatar, I know it's not the most populous country on earth or whatever, but if they had invested even ten percent of what they've spent on their links with, with clubs around the world, particularly Paris Saint-Germain and Barcelona, if they'd invested that money into the football infrastructure of Qatar itself, I'm not saying you're going to get immediate results, mm. but the kids that could come out of that... Well, they have been investing quite a lot, and what they have, and they've, they've also been looking very hard for players from other countries who can be nationalised. They've done that in athletics as well. Is it? Yeah, you see that the Bahrainian guys from Denmark and, and things like that. So, so there is investment there in, the, in their team in their team for the 2022 World Cup. But ultimately, I just think, like, no tinkering with the formats or the structures of international football can make up for the fact yeah. that club football has just wiped them away, basically, yeah, that, that's with, basically with all this money. Yeah. Yeah. So, w- with regards to England, the disconnect with England, how much of, of this can we say is uh, partially, it's partially down to the international football just not being as good as it used to be. It, it, the quality is now not what it was, and club football has easily surpassed it. Is that fair to say? That's fair. Yeah. Mm. But also, there are other issues at hand here that are specifically England, do we think? Yeah, I Probably, think so. Probably, yeah. So I'd, I'd look at two... Th- I mean, I think this is definitely the case. Like, If you remember the kind of national mania when England were in big tournaments from... F- Euro 96 through to say World Cup 2006 I don't think we'll ever see that again like and I don't think that's just to do with how good the England team is I I would dispute that I think if they got say 2018 they got to the second round got a good win and then suddenly in a massive quarter final I I think you would see mania around that game I don't I just don't think it would be as big going into the tournament yeah yeah, that's that's true yeah and like it was just so I mean anyone who was in in England particularly in 04 06 even Euro 2000 winning them were terrible. It was just such a kind of dominant thing in in national life. You know, front page of the papers every day, that kind of thing. And I don't think we'll see that repeated. I think for two reasons. One is the Premier League point. Like I think most football fans now identify so much as like with their Premier League team, rather, and that kind of that has to come at the cost of yeah. supporting England. I also just don't think we have the same kind of mass culture that we did in the same yeah. in the same way. Like England, you know, British culture has changed mainly through technology um, over the last ten or so years, and that means that we, people don't rally. I mean, mm. you, you almost see this a bit in the coverage of the death of Diana twenty years yeah. ago, which has been re- remembered this week. Like we don't, as a nation, we can't kind of rally behind these big events in the same way as we used to. Well, yeah, that's, that's almost more of a media point, I suppose. And up until two thousand six, before kind of you know social media exploded, and that basically the national discussion and discourse was dictated by what was on the front page of the papers, what was on terrestrial television. Now everything is so much more disparate and diverse and people kind of, and as we see, as we just discussed with how England don't do that well in terms of web hits, people will just gravitate to what what they're interested in rather than than being kind of, okay, we're going to be discussing this now. That is an interesting split between what you'll see on the back pages of of newspapers, which are obviously more traditional, and um, the average age, obviously, of a newspaper reader is far higher than it is on on our website, for example. So, you know, on the back page of newspapers, it, it'll all be England, England, England. But the fact is that that's not being reflected in, in what re- people are reading on, on the website. 
And in an age where I think people are, are now a bit more open-minded to, okay, well, if the readers don't want to read this stuff, then why are we investing such resources in, in covering it? Now, you can't always be a slave to this because otherwise yeah. you'd just be going to the lowest common denominator on things. But I think it, it has perhaps realigned expectations, Ben, is that fair to say, about these events and and how they're covered? I think so, yeah. I mean, you look at a World Cup or a Euros and it's the things that people, certainly online, want to read about is the next player Man United could sign out of one of these teams. Everything's club-related. And that has definitely changed in the last 10 years or so since 2006. I, I do think if England had a team actually could, that could challenge that, it would be you'd see a wave of support behind them. You look at what what happened to Portugal last summer and they had no chance until they got all the way and it was a remarkable thing and the whole country got behind. So are a nation of bandwagon jumpers. Yeah, all. for sure. So I, I think, think most nations are. Because it's actually it's a discussion that's often had in Ireland as well. Right, mm. it, it, and it's fair. I think the club uh, country point is, is interesting um, from a completely personal point of view. The moment I realised that I didn't care about England as much as the club I support was um, when they were losing against Germany in the 2010 World Cup. And I was with my mate, uh, Steve, who goes to England away, and he was distraught because we were getting battered by Germany. Mm. And it was the same summer that my club had nearly gone out of business and been saved at the last minute from administration. And, and it it just made me realise, it was like, I don't, this wouldn't affect yeah. me that much. Going out of the World Cup to England wasn't, the. it didn't feel like the end of anything. Like yeah, I didn't yeah. really care. Whereas when uh, Palace were on the brink of, of going out of business, I was I was incredibly affected by it and doing everything I could to try and try and help in it. And it's that summer I kind of realised. And obviously I still support England more than any other team. But for me, I'm just not as interested in it, almost in international football. And I think around the tournaments it is different. I loved covering the, the World Cup in Brazil and, and the Euros last summer. And uh, the World Cup next summer I'm sure is going to be great. But it's more for the the big coming together of all these huge football stars and and what it is and what it has been festival what it has been historically Mm. and and my big fear about russia is that it won't be a festival in the same way it is too big almost i think the country's too big i think there might not be the traveling fans in the way that even brazil um where people weren't expecting a lot of traveling fans hundred thousand colombians in bel horizonte for the first game all the chileans the argentinians also in terms of brazil i can't think of something like six seven tournaments now and I can't think of a more ideal setting for, again, a, a quote-unquote festival of football at the World Cup is than Copacabana Beach. It was just it, it was incredible. Just to really go off, off the topic of people pulling away from England and the national team, is there a danger that with international football kind of alienating people a little bit through no fault of its own, through the strength of the club game, having a World Cup in Russia... Then a Euros, which is spread around a continent with no real centre to to create that festival. Then a World Cup in Qatar. Are we in danger of just killing off international football as a as a spectacle for fans? Do we think? It's an interesting one, that yeah. Um, then that they, they, in terms of just at a very crucial period for international football, it's a is if they picked a series of wrong venues. Exactly. I mean, it, it just seems like a a very dangerous time for them to be doing. I mean. <laughs> We all know how Russia and Qatar ended up doing what they're doing, but how on earth do they try and carry these World Cups off as, as something Im- important and something that people are going to be invested in? It's a missed opportunity, isn't it? Because this is, you know, th- this is the point in football's development when I think people most need the purity, if that's the right word, mm-hmm. of international football as a kind of counterpoint to club football, which is just True. so dominated by 
the kind of global elite and the and the, and the mega rich. And so for international football to be selling itself down yeah. the water and destroying everything that made it so special is just, I mean, it's really, really very bad timing. It was actually something I was thinking of on Saturday, just obviously two days after transfer window and after England's match. I think Southgate has a bit of an issue to solve with, with, the, with his midfield. And whereas in the club game, obviously you, all, all of um, Southgate's counterparts at the top of the Premier League would basically, or what they tried to do all summer, we have a problem, let's sign a player for that problem. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the remaining glories of international football is that you can't do that. And no matter how good any international football team is through history, they've always had one problem that the manager has to solve. But it's a pity then that all the best football minds aren't there solving those problems. They're, they're, they're in the club game. Well, it's, yeah. it, I mean, he could have gone and bought Danny Drinkwater for £35 million. That would be the, the obvious <laughs> answer if you're Southgate. But you look at... The interesting thing for me is, is the transfer thing, like you said... When I was covering Spain, uh, they just brought in Diego Costa mm. from from Brazil. Yeah. You know, so uh, as close as you're going to get to an international transfer, and it did seem to solve their their never-ending problem that they didn't have a number nine. And it's, it ties in with what you were saying earlier on about Lopetegui, Ben saying that he wants Harry Kane because that's the position that Spain have really been lacking in. I think it speaks mm. wider to the wider problem of, for want of a better word, the death of coaching. Yeah. Almost, it's that if you look at, I mean. Harry Redknapp in the Championship is famous for it. He's gone in this this summer to go and, well, end of last season, and this summer he's like, I need more players in. And instead of looking at the players you've got and trying to improve them, too many coaches have have turned to the checkbook to go and the, fix the, it. The, there's a piece that might be on the independence in the next 48 hours on that very issue. That's yeah. half written. Um, but yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's like Conte is, the, for me anyway, the best manager in the league, and that's why Chelsea won the league. He didn't get the players yeah. he wanted last summer. I think that's, most people would agree on that. Yeah, through, he got, got the tools he wanted he got the tools he was given yeah on the first of september last year and then thought how am i going to think how am i going to do something with these but yeah it is easy to be dismissive of guys like guardiola and Mourinho as checkbook managers because they have spent the most money over the last five years by distance but at the same time that we've seen Mourinho do this before Mourinho in international football will be fascinating I yeah think, yeah because i mean i'd say to win a tournament yeah yeah you've got to fancy him to win a yeah. tournament but equally yeah. like quite you know we know we know that guardiola had an interest in that brazil job when it was mm. open Imagine Guardiola in international football, but with the reduced coaching time. Would Guardiola be able to get his messages across? Because what his is, is Jack, it's a very deeply coached thing. Yeah, I think what we saw in Guardiola's first season at City is that his football is so complex and it requires, there's like a theoretical element to it first that you have to understand the Guardiola principles before you can even start to think about where you have to stand on the pitch or what you're meant to do when you're one nil up or anything like that. And therefore, you know, as much... I, I, I would certainly have some scepticism about Guardiola's ability to deliver in that kind of environment. And also because, I mean, this is another issue that you might have with Guardiola, is that he does seem to be a guy who, because of the complexity of his football, can only is at his best when he has brilliant players <laughs> in every position. Um, unfortunately, he, that has been the case in some of the jobs he's had so far. But if he were to be manager of, say, Spain, or even anyone else, <laughs> like, as Miguel was saying, the reality is you're not going to have world-class players in every position. And therefore, he's gonna, you know, there's gonna be a bit of an issue there. On a massive but slightly connected tangent, actually, just in relation to Costa, I think there's an argument. David Villa was actually Spain's most important player throughout that, rather than Xavi. And, and that's and why they brought him back. back. And yeah, back. they brought yeah. him back yeah. in the squad. And I mean, imagine Guardiola, how grumpy he's going to be at 60, but he could be <laughs> Spain manager. And, and that also speaks. Well, to actually, I probably wouldn't, would he? With the ca- unless, there's a, unless by then there's a cap on break. national yeah, team by that point. Yeah. The, the issue with, um, we're saying about the, the poor quality of coaching, 
uh, I think you did a, a numbers breakdown on this, Miguel. You won't be able to remember the numbers because it's over a year ago now. But a lot of the coaches there were either young, unproven guys, mm. basically former players who've been given the job with nothing, like Mark Wilmot, who turned out to be probably the worst coach at the tournament. Yeah. Or the old guys who have been and done it yeah, and, yeah. and have been around the block and kind of gradually working their way down the pecking order. You haven't. It's a bit of a talent donut scenario. If you're in your peak coaching years and you're at the Euros, you're probably not very good. Yeah, exactly. Is that the, a fair that's comment? and yeah, pretty, and I mean, I suppose Conte did it for reasons of national pride, and also because maybe how specific his situation was. I mean, he just kind of well when walked, he walked out. Yeah, Juve, walked out yeah. in Juve for similar issues that are going on in Chelsea now. Uh, but he ultimately he wanted to get out of it as quick as possible because he found he missed the day to day. He but, missed the challenge. The, the so the other thing with, with I mean, this is moving away from England slightly, isn't it? But I was reading Gary Neville earlier on said that you know the disconnect with international football isn't necessarily a modern phenomenon. They were booed um, against Saudi Arabia at Wembley uh, before Euro '96. Um, if you think before Italian '90, when the nation kind of fell back in love with England, supporting England and England football team wasn't a very popular thing because of uh, fan 80s, troubles abroad and, and the '80s and stuff. So, uh, after having discussed it for so long, Ben, are we reading too much into this disconnection? Or do you think there is genuinely something perhaps that the FA could do to try and engage people, re-engage people with this English team? Or are we just a country where only success will do it? I think as so often there's probably it's probably a grey area. I think if you play winning football, people will watch it. And I think people will be interested in a winning football team. I do think that we have got to a stage where club football is this bear moth, which we which international can't compete with. It's too good. It's mm. too good. The and champi- the standard's too good. You've got the Champions League every fortnight. You're going to have a better game, two, three, four better games in the Champions League than any of the games we've seen over the international break. But there's nothing international football can do about that, whether it's a change in qualification format so there's more good teams in the same group as each other, that kind of thing. But I think as, a, as far as England goes, I think if they continue to push what they're trying to push, so... T- try and push talented players through. The more modern Southgate approach. More modern Southgate yeah. approach. And if that plays winning football, and like we said, if it somehow stumble through into a quarterfinal, I think you'd see enough people still come back to them. It's, I mean, I think Neville was wrong, though. And I think he's kind of confused in two different situations, two, different, two superficially similar situations, but actually different situations. Uh, what, because one was, ju- ju- one just, was ju- poor yeah, performance? Or? Well, ju- just because there was, there was two friendlies, and, and let's, let's remember they're friendlies, where you know, they were booed off and, there weren't, and people were half-interested. It's still kind of 40,000 people going to a game. And it, and it was still, as Jack said, in the peak of, the, of this genuine mania before a tournament. Um, so I think I, I don't think what he's trying to... Comp- I, I don't think they're comparable. I think the, what's, what's going on now is different to then, and as we, we, we literally have the numbers to prove it. Yeah, Delaney slams Neville. <laughs> uh, I, I think there's also, there was an interesting piece in the, in the Times today by James Gearbrandt about how friendlies are not only pointless, they are genuinely Skewing worse than that. Just, yeah. They're worse than that. They take off your points in the world rankings. If England are to be successful at tournaments, they need to be top seeds, because otherwise you get stuck with Brazil, Argentina, mm. Germany, and we know how that ends. Uh is there not perhaps a point that England just need to be savvier from top to bottom? Because it does. Uh, I think someone raised this with uh, a senior member of the FA uh, that there was less interest in the England team, and, and they kind of batted it off as if it just isn't true. We have the numbers, as you say, to, to show that it isn't true. So, do you think that maybe the FA are in a little bit of denial, Jack, about the interest in the England team? Um, I don't know. I. I'd be reluctant to endorse like an approach whereby England played fewer games against good teams. 
particularly given that we were just talking about how one of the downsides of the mm. international calendar is that England had these endless games against Slovakia and Slovenia. Yeah. Every second international, I guess. Yeah, and then, and then they oh. never play anyone good. And I think that one thing the FA's done well is getting these kind of glamorous friendlies. Again, you know, we've played recently against France, Brazil, Spain Germany, twice. Italy, Spain. Um, and, you know, even if that is damaging to the ranking points, like I don't think that we should see the national team as like a headlong pursuit yeah. of ranking points. Also, this this is England. Like this, this 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 shouldn't be. This is a country of a sufficient size that it shouldn't be kind of trying to game the system. It more, should be, more infrastructure. It, it, sorry, yeah. size-wise, England not that big. But as yeah. a football nation, in terms of the money and infrastructure, mm. that is where England are underachieving. Yeah, yeah, completely. But, but, but yeah, they, they, they have enough there that they shouldn't have to game the system. They shouldn't have the structures in place in, in their own right that produces a high-quality team. Because, I mean, you know, having coming, well, half me coming from a small nation, you can look at what's possible for England enviously. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think we have gone way off topic, but also gone straight back on topic and managed to cover off most of that um, I am pretty happy with it all, but I do want to set you one thing, Miguel. There's no point talking about England versus uh, Slovakia because by the time people listen to this, it will be over. So I'm just going to set you uh, one teaser quickly. Harry Kane, Eric Dyer and Deli Alley playing at their club home ground tonight, Wembley. If either of them, if any of them score, if they would become the first England player to score at their club's home ground since who? It must be some of the United players at Old Trafford. Beckham. The answer is not David Beckham. If you do know the answer, then uh, please tweet us at uh, Indie Football, and uh, the winner will get uh, a program and a team sheet from Wembley tonight because I said so. Uh, thank you uh, for everyone. That is all that we have time for. Uh, next time you have me invading your ear space, we will have a full Premier League weekend behind us. England will be one step closer to Russia, we expect, and we may have our first top flight managerial casualty of the season. So until then, my thanks to Ben Burrows. Thank you. Miguel Delaney. Thank you. And Jack Pitbrook. Thank you. And also to producer Tom and our friends at ACAST, the podcast providers. I've been Ed Malley, and this has been the Indie Football Podcast. Thank you and goodbye.